Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. The show dedicated to discussing politics, literature, philosophy, science, fiction, food, art, and of course religion from a traditional Catholic viewpoint. I am your host for tonight's show, Pierce Hugill, and I am joined by one of our other regular hosts, uh, Nicholas Wansbatter. Tonight we'll be talking about devotion to the Pope as one of the principal themes, indeed possibly one of the backbones of Catholic piety. And we are very fortunate tonight to be joined by Father Benedict Hughes to discuss the topic. Father felt the call of God to the priesthood from his earliest youth. After two years in a diocesan minor seminary, however, and by the grace of God, he recognized the errors of the new mass and joined the fledgling seminary of the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, uh, often known as the CMRI, in 1971. Since then, he has spent his life in the service of our Blessed Mother and Holy Mother Church. In addition to his experience in giving public lectures on the message of Fatima and traveling extensively to serve mission centers, Father Benedict has taught students in the elementary, secondary, and collegiate and seminary levels since 1974. His realization of the critical need for well-trained priests, as well as his dedication to the apostolate of Catholic education, led him to found the St. Joseph Minor Seminary 14 years ago. Currently, Father is the pastor of Mary Immaculate Queen Parish in northern Idaho, and editor of The Reign of Mary, a traditional Catholic magazine, which comes out, I believe, uh, quarterly. Is that correct, Father? That's correct. Yeah. He also travels regularly on mission circuits and is rector of the St. Joseph Seminary we mentioned earlier. One of ten children, he also has a brother who is a priest and a sister who is a religious, both also members of the CMRI. Thank you and welcome, Father, to, to Restoration Radio. Thank you. Happy to be with you. It's a pleasure. The music we just heard at the beginning of the show was from one of the two motets uh, Palestrina wrote called Tues Petrus. And these words, Tues Petrus, are used on several occasions throughout the liturgy uh, for the feast of the chair of St. Peter at Rome, which was yesterday. And our Lord spoke to them, spoke them, rather, these words, in order to give to St. Peter the primacy in the church, which he and his successors have held ever since. Uh, just quoting from the gospel, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. So before we start uh, this discussion, Father, on the nature of the papacy and the Pope and the attitude that ordinary Catholics ought to have to this man, could you begin by telling us the answer to what is probably a very simple question, but one that it's perhaps easy also to, to forget or, or not to keep firmly in mind, and that is, who is this man, the Pope? Right, important question. Uh, the Pope of course, as we know from our catechism, is the successor of St. Peter, the vicar of Christ on earth. So we say that Jesus Christ is the head of the church he established. Uh, the church is the mystical body. Christ is the head of the body. We are the members. Uh, Christ is the head of the church, but on earth he has a visible representative, and that is the Pope. So we had St. Peter and then his successors down through the centuries. So at any given time, a pope is the successor of St. Peter, the vicar of Christ, and the visible head of Christ's church on earth. Thank you very much, uh, Father. A very succinct uh, and direct answer. Um, for those of you just joining us, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is devotion to the pope and how ordinary Catholics today are to understand their relationship to the pope and the papacy and what kind of devotion they must offer him. Uh, 
or not in the case of the seat being vacant as at the moment. In his sermon for the Feast of the Circumcision, that is the 1st of January 1860, Father Frederick Faber, who is probably one of the most famous uh, English Catholic writers of the 19th century, enumerates some important ways in which our Lord has continued his, what Father Faber calls his real presence in the world, uh, and so, as it were, his um, perpetuated incarnation. Obviously, these include the, uh, the most blessed sacrament, first and foremost, and it is, I suppose, only in this case that his presence is truly identically real with his presence on earth 2,000 years ago. But Father Faber also says that, or sort of suggests in his sermon, which has uh, recently been republished by the CMRI, that uh, our human love needs, as it were, other avenues to express its love of Christ. Uh, and Father Faber suggests that the persons of the poor, for example, are... Uh, an intimation of the presence of Christ and the persons of children, both categories of which require our charity and our care in a very special and Christian way. But having listed these three types of Alter Christus, these presences of Christ in the world, Father Faber goes on to suggest that the person of the Pope, which is our topic tonight, is yet another way in which Christ gives himself to us, and in this case in the person of usually an old man, so that old age might be sanctified too, but also so that his authority might find a, a real presence, a human presence on earth now, as well as his poverty and humility. Um, Father Benedict, can you tell us why uh, it's now that the CMRA, CMRI sorry, has decided to reprint this little work, and, mm -hmm. and what significance do you think it has for Catholics today? Right. Good question. Very important one, because uh, the reason is because we live at a time where many traditional Catholics, seeing the heresies coming forth from Rome, from individuals who are called Pope, uh, and knowing that this is not Catholic, uh, try to determine, well, how do I balance my faith in the papacy, my belief in the papacy, with uh, my also my knowledge of the faith that that what's coming forth from the Vatican is not Catholic. And mm. instead of coming to the logical conclusion of Sedevicantism, many traditional Catholics have developed a, a sort of strange theological conclusion that, well, these men are popes, but we don't have to obey them, what, what is often called recognize but resist. So mm. the, the point in a nutshell here is that we have seen over the past 30 or so years uh, an unusual, a strange, a novel uh, view of the papacy, one in which someone can pay lip service or, for instance, put a picture of the supposed pope in the back of their chapel and then utterly ignore him, uh, have nothing else to do with him, uh, reject or pick and choose which of his teachings they will, uh, they will obey. And this is utterly uncatholic. There, there is no precedent for it. There is no um, basis in theology for that kind of uh, behavior or attitude. And on the contrary, the true Catholic view is one expressed by Father Faber uh, in this sermon on devotion to the Pope. So we published it, republished this wonderful sermon in order to, again, convey that true Catholic concept, because many traditional Catholics may be gradually 
due to the large numbers of the, the recognize but resist crowd, may be imbibing a false sense of what is the Catholic attitude towards the papacy. Now, uh, Father, uh, maybe to be a little bit of devil's advocate here, uh, I think recognize and resist people would argue that there is uh, um, precedent, or uh, they'll usually give an example of um, Renaissance popes like... Uh, uh, the notorious ones uh, was it? I think it was Alexander the Sixth, mm-hmm. uh, who had illegitimate children, and they'll use that as the basis, saying like, "Well, no one would be expected to to go along with uh, the Pope having uh, uh, concubines and illegitimate children and making them into uh, cardinals." Uh, so, how, how would you respond to that? Mm-hmm. And and that's an important question, because here we have to make a distinction between the man who is Pope, his personal life or personal behavior, as opposed to his public teaching of the Church. And uh, it's interesting, when Vatican Council I uh, convened in 1869, and the topic of uh, infallibility, not only infallibility of the Church, but in particular the infallibility of the Pope, was uh, being drafted. The, these, the document was being prepared. There was a lot of discussion, and uh, an effort was made to go back in, in church history in order to see if a pope had ever formally or publicly taught error. And all of the, the typical uh, ones, Pope John the Twenty Second, or um, you know Liberius, uh, different different historical incidents were brought up, and it was found that no pope ever taught heresy to the universal church. Uh, that has never been done. The, the, the See of Peter has always been undefiled with heresy. A pope never has never taught public heresy, and, or manifest heresy, let us say. And this, this could not happen. Uh, Christ uh, promised that he would be with his church till the end of time. Thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, he told Peter, once thou hast turned or converted, strengthen thy brethren, and so forth. Uh, so when people use the uh, supposed, and I say supposed because I think historically some of the um, the misdeeds of certain popes, such as you mentioned during the Renaissance or during perhaps the, the so-called Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages, uh, some of these have been exaggerated, and it's really sometimes difficult to sift fact from fiction in historical accounts. But the point here is that the personal behavior of the man who is Pope does not uh, concern his formal or public teaching. So you could have a Pope, for example, who is not uh, an, an outstanding example of a Christian in his own personal life, who yet teaches the truth when he teaches the Church. And that is, in fact, what has happened on some occasions. Uh, I remember, interestingly, that there was a pope whom St. Charles Borromeo, or I should say a cardinal, whom St. Charles Borromeo was was uh, promoting among the other cardinals to be elected at this conclave in the late 1500s. And, you know, St. Charles Borromeo was so highly regarded, everyone knew of his sanctity, that if he put his weight behind a particular candidate, that candidate was likely to become next pope. And and so this cardinal, in fact, was elected. And someone went up to him afterwards and said, "Did you know that that uh, this after this man had been elected pope?" 
And they said to St. Charles Borromeo, did you know he had an illegitimate child, you know, so many years ago? And St. Charles Borromeo said, no, I didn't know that, but the Holy Ghost did. And the point was mm-hmm. that, you know, he was elected, and uh, he, St. Charles Borromeo, considered that of the various candidates, he was the best for the, um, for the office. But the point, again, is that a pope is not a saint necessarily, or a per- and certainly never a perfect Christian. Uh, and yet, as a true pope, he would never teach heresy. So when they bring up uh, the, as you to, to get back to your question, the quote-unquote Renaissance popes who were scandalous or at least unworthy, that does not have anything to do with their teaching office, teaching the truth in the Church. Uh, I was thinking of another uh, case or another example uh, to complement what uh, Nicholas was saying, um, which is the case of John the Twenty Second, uh, which is another pope who mm-hmm. some uh, recognize resist uh, people mentioned as having taught heresy in the sense that he is said to have taught um, that people go, uh, what is it? Der- I can't remember now exactly what his case was. Something uh, yes, and, and likewise, I, I can't remember all the details, but it, I believe it was that when they, when they died, they wouldn't have the beatific vision right away, or maybe not until the, right. end of the end of time. Yeah, they would have to wait until the, 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 the final the judgment. Just would have the, right. And what what happened in that case was that he expressed this to other cardinals or various members uh, of the Roman Curia, just individuals, as his personal theological opinion. And this was something that hadn't been formally defined at that point. And uh, when they all came to him and said afterwards, after this little sermon, or that he mentioned this, they said, well, wait a minute, that, that can't be, and this is why, and so, and so forth, then he retracted it. And in fact, he said at that time that it had merely been his personal opinion, and he did not intend in any way to teach the Church. So it's when the Pope in his teaching office is teaching the universal Church, uh, he cannot err when, when that is, those are the circumstances. Exactly. So just to clarify, I mean, what you're saying is that he, although now if some if a pope taught that it would be heresy, then it wasn't because it hadn't been formally defined at that stage. And in right. any case, uh, John the Twenty Second was teaching as a private theologian when he Correct. made these statements. Thank you, Father. Part of the need for the pope, uh, this office, um, so Father Faber argues, is our need as Christians to submit ourselves to God in love and humility. And I quote his uh, sermon here. Yet there are other kinds of love to which we reach as we grow in grace, higher kinds bespeaking higher graces, more robust as being more proper to the fullness of our manhood in Christ. We want to obey. We want to receive commands, to hearken to teaching, to practice submission. We have wills of our own, and we want to give them up for the will of him we love. We cling to our own opinions, and we set a high price upon our own judgments and we wish to abandon them for his sake. We want to conquer the self-seeking of our understandings in order that our hearts may grow larger and we may be able to love more vehemently and more exclusively. We want more immolation of self in our service of Jesus than the tending of the poor and children can supply. Besides, we want him as our master. It was the name his disciples on earth delighted to give him. Uh, These virtues, uh, sorry, I ended the quote there, these virtues undoubtedly Catholic seem hard to find anywhere now. But perhaps, in a sense, least of all in the traditional movement, ironically, since Father Faber directs these remarks to what he calls devotion to the Pope, 
Can you tell me what significance they have for Catholics today when it seems at the very least high doubtful that we have an authentic pope occupying mm-hmm. the chair of uh, St. Peter? Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, if I may, I'd like to kind of uh, rephrase that quote that you gave from the okay. sermon of Father Faber, and and I don't know how many of our listeners may may not be familiar with Father Faber. I know, I know people have read some of his books, The Blessed Sacrament, Foot of the Cross, Bethlehem, wonderful, wonderful works. I remember the yes. first book I read of Father Faber, there were paragraphs, I had to go back and read it a second time to understand what he was saying. He's a very mm-hmm. profound and, and wonderful writer. Uh, the amazing thing that he, um, when he, he died in, I think, was it 1866 or thereabouts? Uh-huh. Um, he was only only uh, 49 years old when he passed away, and he produced an incredible volume of work. Uh, he was mm-hmm. so so gifted and so orthodox and so, um, uh, so incredibly talented in explaining the faith that Pope Pius IX gave him the title of Doctor of Divinity. And other theologians who were uh, contemporaries had a tremendous esteem for him, among them Abbot Geringer of the Abbey of Solem in France, highly esteemed uh, Father Faber. So he is uh, he's an outstanding author, and the, the section that you quoted there uh, had to do with, if we can go back to your first question, he was yeah. talking about how 2,000 years ago, uh, the people who lived in Judea and saw Christ and loved him and honored him, they saw his human nature. And we can't do that today. So we we worship our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, but he's hidden behind the Eucharistic veil, sacramental species. Uh, and so by faith, we you might say we pierce the veil and we adore him as God. But our our Love craves a way to, to you might say, give homage to his human nature. And that's where Father Faber said, well, we can do that in the poor, that what we do for the poor, for the love of Christ, is being done to him. And then he also mentions children, of such is the kingdom of God. And by loving and teaching children and guiding them and so forth, we are doing that for Christ. But he says, but there's something missing with the, with the poor and with children because there's not, on our part, a homage. But yet, if you look at the life of Christ, you see the apostles always called him master. He was always the master. And, of course, they knew that he was far above them, and that, indeed, he was the Son of God, and so forth. But there, there is the desire of love to, to submit, to lay down as a sacrifice one's own will. And so, this is what we can do through obedience to lawful authority, and in particular, the Pope. The Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, the visible representative of Christ on earth. There has always been this Catholic sense of devotion to the Pope, to his person, not just, not just listening to his teachings, but the sacredness of his person. And interestingly, while, while we are on this uh, subject of devotion to the Pope, it reminds me of another author, uh, and this would be the wonderful priest from South America, Father Mateo, who promoted what was called the enthronement of the Sacred Heart in the home, enthronement of the home to the Sacred Heart. And Father Mateo wrote a wonderful book called Jesus, King of Love. And towards the end of that book, he also has a chapter entitled Devotion to the Pope. Uh, the, the title might be a little bit different, but that's the, the gist of the chapter. And it's interesting, he, he talks in there about how a pope, normally by tradition for at least hundreds of years, the pope wears white 
And he said, well, our Lord in the Holy Eucharist, uh, we use unleavened bread that's a bleached flour so that the host is white. And he said that, that should remind us of the Holy Eucharist so that the Pope, by showing homage to his person, and of course, Catholics are familiar with the customary marks of homage, kip, kissing the Pope's slipper or whatever in an audience. This is all because of wanting to revere Christ in the person of the Pope. And uh, uh, getting back to what Father Faber says, submitting our wills through obedience. Uh, the Pope has authority, of course, over every member of the Church, including all the other bishops. The Pope is a bishop, but he is the first among bishops, the primacy, and also is uh, has the fullness of jurisdiction over each and every member of the mystical body of Christ. So on the part of a Catholic, there is this sense of revering a Pope. There is a sense of respect and of, um, of reverence, really, of revering Christ in the person of the Pope. Um, and and that, that brings up one other interesting point, and that is that the, the Freemasons and other enemies of the Church know this. They know what the Catholic sense of devotion to the papacy is. And that is why I recall reading a prominent Freemason, and I think this was back in the 1800s, saying, we must get control of the chair of Peter. We will never be able to do what we want to do to the Catholic Church until we have our own man on the chair of Peter. So in, in, uh, instead of trying, to, try, uh, trying to, to destroy or eliminate the Pope, they decided, well, we can use this Catholic sense of reverence and devotion and love for the Pope by somehow getting our own man into that position, and then we will have the people. Then we can, then we can do what we want with the Church, and, and that's exactly what they've done. Absolutely. Now, the, the, yeah. interesting, uh, the interesting flip side to that uh, for me, Father, is that many traditionalists, uh, because of the scandal of uh, the Vatican II uh, papal claimants, they've you know, one would think of them as the faithful Catholics, but they're going away from that devotion to the Pope. And I just remember seeing uh, recently on the Internet a uh, indult priest uh, who runs a blog, Father Zolsdorf, who's fairly well known. He made a, a post commenting about what he thought the SSPX bishop should do, and he made commentary about some of the devotional practices to the Pope, like um, how... Uh, he remembered when a, a phone call would be received from the Pope by one of the curial offices. Everyone would kneel in the room while the, uh, mm. the member of the curia was receiving the phone call. And then, and, and I saw the comments that many recognized as this type of people were posting, saying, "Oh, that's like condemning that type of behavior and condemning mm -hmm. Father Zolzdorf for making that sort of suggestion that the SSPX bishops and priests should all go and kiss the Pope's foot and, uh, you know, who they say the Pope is, who mm -hmm. they say their Pope is, that they should give the type of obedience. So it's, um, the, the, uh, when you talk about the Freemasons trying to get a hold of the office because they, they know they can't accomplish it. On the other hand, there's been a certain accomplishment of, in the eyes of those or in the minds of those who are more, faithful to the church teachings, there's been the, uh, that lack of uh, understanding for the type of uh, devotion there should be. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's a wonderful point. 
And um, we had referred to that earlier on in the program, how because of the situation today and realizing the heresies that are coming out of Vatican II and of the Vatican itself, uh, here we see John Paul II and now Benedict XVI having these infamous pan-religious meetings in Assisi and promoting ecumenism and visiting Jewish synagogues and so on and so forth, and people are saying, well, I, I can't accept that, I can't endorse that. So what they've done, instead of saying that, well, this man couldn't be a true pope or he wouldn't do that, they have changed their view of the papacy. And that's an interesting example you mentioned. I had never heard of that practice of uh, those in the office kneeling during the call, but that would be logical. That would be uh, a Catholic response to who the pope is. If we understand this, this individual has the fullness of jurisdiction, uh, Christ's representative on earth, then by all means, that type of behavior would be would be just commonplace and would be, you might say, would result without even anyone saying or asking for it. It would be it would be a result of Catholic piety, and that's what we really need to recover. And by rereading the works, uh, the work of the sermon of Father Faber on devotion to the Pope, hopefully we can spread this Catholic concept because many have lost it, and it's very sad that 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 that's being damaged and compromised today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, just, it, and just as you were speaking there, Father, I, I was put in mind of a quote that is often seen from St. Catherine of Siena, where she called the Pope of her time the oh, sweet Christ on earth. Like he, he really mm-hmm. is the vicar of Christ. He's uh, Christ, Christ on earth for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Catholic... Catholic piety, you would have a home of a good Catholic would have a picture of the Pope, and there would be this sense, this awareness that there is the Pope. I may never meet him, but he is the Vicar of Christ on earth, and he and he is my connection, we could say, with Christ. The Pope is our connection with Christ. You cannot separate yourself from the Pope and still be united to Christ. And Father Faber says something interesting in this uh, sermon. I think it's towards the end of the sermon. He said, it would be uh, the same as you can't be a Christian without devotion to Mary. You also can't be a Christian without mm-hmm. devotion to the Pope. I, I really like how he equates the two. He says it's impossible to be a true Christian and not have devotion to Mary. Uh, this goes back to, you know, the book True Devotion by St. Louis Marie de Montfort, which, by the way, Father Faber translated into English. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then he applies that same that same parallel uh, concept to devotion to the Pope. You're not a true Christian if you're lacking that devotion to the Pope. Incidentally, on on a personal basis, I like to tell people that I received the blessing of Pope St. Pius X, and people look at me like, how old are you? (laughs) And uh, what happened is my maternal grandmother, uh, when she was about 18 or 20 years old, her pastor was organizing a pilgrimage to Rome. And she was not able to go, so she went to him and asked him if he would obtain the blessing of the Pope for her, since she wasn't able to go on this pilgrimage. And they were going to have an audience with St. Pius X, um, you know, in like 1910 or whatever. And um, uh, so, so the pastor obtained the apostolic blessing for my grandmother and her descendants to the third generation, which would be me, you know, up to <laughs> myself and my siblings. So, you know, that's a, a point of Catholic pride to think uh, of, uh, you know, a Catholic, uh, you might say, devotion and, and uh, 
and pride to think I received the apostolic blessing or or maybe I have a, a, a rosary or something that was blessed by the Pope. Again, this, this sense of connection with Christ through the Pope, it's, uh, it's so important. And, and I might, as, as a, a side note, mention here, some people say, well, how can you be a sede de contest? As though we somehow abandon, for the time being, our Catholic belief in the papacy in order to be a sede de contest. And what they don't understand, it's because we are Catholics that we reject someone who claims to be Pope, who's, who's teaching heresy and undermining the faith and really destroying the faith. It's because we are Catholics, because we believe in the papacy, not, not in spite of it, not in spite of our, our faith and our belief in the papacy, but because we believe all that we have talked about of what a pope is and who a pope is, etc., that we must reject um, these men who claim to be pope and yet are teaching a new religion. Yes, Father, those are, uh, in a sense, uh, difficult wor- words. And, and I know when I was sort of moving, I mean, I was baptized into the Nevis Ordo and moved through all the grades of tradition until I, I uh, came to the conclusion that the, the Sea of Peter was empty. But it, those words are, are, are difficult, that idea that, you know, I really want to be devoted to the Pope and, and, and somehow I'm not if I'm a certificantist. But when you understand what you just said about it being really the certificantists who are truly devoted to the Pope, uh, rather than anybody else, when you really understand what that means, it's it's in a sense crystal clear, it, mm-hmm. because we're the only ones who are really, really wanting to follow that tradition, f- follow that real belief in the Catholic faith, and and not accept any compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, following from what you said, I mean, you preempted one of my questions, which is about exactly you know those those uh, never sort of conservatives who say that you must uh, accept the Pope. Uh, Father Faber calls devotion to the Pope quote, an essential part of Christian piety, as a compliment to what you were saying about um, devotion to, to Mary. Quote, to the eye of faith, he says, nothing can be more venerable than the way in which the Pope represents God. It is as if heaven were always open over his head and the light shone down upon him. And like Stephen, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father while the world is gnashing its teeth upon him with a hatred the unearthly excess of which must often be a wonder to itself. We must honor the vicar of Jesus with a loving faith and with a trustful, uncriticizing reverence. We should not allow ourselves in one dishonoring thought, in one cowardly suspicion, in one faint-hearted uncertainty about anything which concerns either his spiritual or his temporal sovereignty, for even his temporal kinship is part of our religion. But further to what you were saying about how it's truly said of the Cantists who, who understand what devotion to the Pope means. One of the most difficult arguments I have with, with Novus Order conservatives is when they say this, um, that we are indeed guilty of exactly the, the fault that Father Faber is pointing out here, because we're, we're not being trusting and, un, un, and, and uncritical. Benedict the Sixteenth, they will argue, has assured us that there is indeed what he calls a hermeneutic of continuity between the Catholic Church of today and the teaching that went before Vatican II. And who are we, as just ordinary Catholics, to criticize him and say that he's wrong? So they would argue, if we were really following Father Faber's advice, shouldn't we just accept the changes, even if we don't understand how it's possible to reconcile them? I mean, even the theologians writing notes on, on the Vatican II documents themselves said, I don't know how this works, but I just trust that it does. 
shouldn't we be the same? Shouldn't we just accept that, that religious liberty, the nature of the church, and the ecumenical movement are really in continuity with tradition? Mm-hmm. You know what I would do if uh, the, these friends um, who are saying that we are, um, how did you put it, that we're un, uh, that we're being critical, that we should have an uncritical, just a simple obedience and so forth to the Pope. Uh, I would throw it back on them and say, well, do you, do you obey everything that has come out of Vatican II? Do you go to the Novus Ordo Missae? Do you receive communion in the hand? Do you, um, do you participate in ecumenical services and interfaith services? And you could go down the long laundry list. Yeah. Do you do this? And, and they would be horrified to think, well, what do you want me to do that? And so, you, you know, they're being illogical. They're not even following their, their own argument. And I would answer that by quoting something that Bishop McKenna said to me. I remember I was talking to Bishop McKenna about 25 to 30 years ago about sedificantism and so forth. And I said, Your Excellency, how would you answer when someone says you're judging the Pope, that no one is allowed to judge the Pope? And we know that. We haven't discussed that. But we know that's a basic principle, Mm. that the Pope has no uh, uh, superior on earth. He's only subject to God. You couldn't bring a true pope before a, an ecclesiastical tribunal and bring witnesses mm-hmm. and judge the pope. No man judges the pope. So I said to Bishop McKenna, because I wasn't sure at that time, well, how would I answer this? So I said, well, what do you say if someone says you're judging the pope? Bishop McKenna says, no, we're not judging this man. We're not judging the pope. We're judging whether or not such and such a person is the pope. And I think that is such, he, he put it so well. And it is so important because we're not judging the man. We are judging whether or not this man is the Pope. I mean, think about Catholics who lived at the time of um, Anacletus II, who was one of the anti-popes in the history of the Mm. church. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux actually went to Rome and and threw him out because the people of Rome thought, well, he's the true Pope. And it created a, you know, a a, a schism there in the church. Uh, People had to make a judgment. Here's St. Bernard, this great preacher, this, uh, this renowned and holy man, is saying he's not the Pope. But the, you know, then the other one, the true Pope, is saying he is the Pope. Who do, so people had to make a judgment. But once you make a judgment and say, I believe this man is the Pope, then you don't take what he says and say, well, I'll take this one. I won't accept that one. Mm-hmm. I'll follow this. I won't follow that. And that's what's going on by the recognized but resist crowd today. So there's, they've made the judgment already. This man is my Pope. He is a true Pope. But then their Catholic sense is telling them that religious liberty and false ecumenism, these things are wrong and I can't endorse it. So I kind of look the other way when Benedict XVI does it and somehow come up with a new theological principle like, well, he wasn't protected by infallibility at that point, or when he declared this person a blessed or a saint, he wasn't protected by infallibility. And so they come up with this novel, this really uncatholic and new concept of um, when you obey the Pope. And, and it's, it, it really is, is somewhat ludicrous, where they think that they can put his picture in the vestibule of their churches, their chapels, and they're somehow loyal to the Pope. And yet the very existence of their chapels is outside his own um, permission and and jurisdiction and authority, what they claim is his authority. So I I would, to get back to your question, I would throw it back on them, say, well, are you completely submissive, uncritical, and obedient to the one you claim to be Pope? And likely the answer is no, they're not.
I think that's a very, a very good uh, and actually a very positive way of of, uh, of putting it. Thank you, Father. For those of you just joining us, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our uh, topic today is devotion to the Pope. Uh, we're interested particularly in the the republication of the sermon of that name of Father Frederick Faber, and we're discussing this issue with um, Father Benedict Hughes of the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen. Um, how can ordinary Catholics today understand their relation to the Pope? or the papacy, and what kind of devotion must they have to him, and what must we do in times when there is no Pope, as we, many of us believe now. Incidentally, uh, talking about devotion to the Pope, uh, Father, one thing we haven't mentioned is what, what Catholics do now when, when, for those of us who don't recognize their, their being a Pope, how is devotion to the Pope to be expressed in tough times as we live in at the moment? Thank you for bringing, that's, that's such a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up, and I would like to start my answer by quoting an, an analogy that was used by Bishop George Musey years ago. And uh, I just always remembered this because I thought it was so well put. And he was answering the question. He said, well, what do we do now? Some people say, well, mm -hmm. if you don't have a Pope now, then we're kind of lost and we don't know what to do and so on and so forth. You got to have a Pope. And he said, well, think of a ship after our, after all our Lord, uh, we use the bark of Peter. We refer to the church as the bark of Peter. So let's imagine a ship on a journey, let's say from New York to London, you know, to, to Europe, whatever, um, going across the ocean. And you have the captain of the ship who would be like the Pope. Um, you have a crew that would be uh, representative of the bishops and priests of the church. And then you have the passengers, the, the faithful. And so this, this ship is on the journey, and all of a sudden, uh, unexpectedly, the captain has a heart attack and dies. The crew don't say, well, we're just going to have to just let the winds take us. We'll, we'll, our, our captain is gone, and there's nothing we can do. Or do they say, well, wait a minute, we're, we're seasoned seamen. We know how to run this ship. They go into the captain's quarters, and they pull out the maps, and they look at the course that he charted. And they say, we know how to follow this course. It's, it's all right here. He charted the course. Uh, we know how to trim the sails. We know how to, chart, how to um, uh, follow the course and how to handle the ship. And so they uh, continue their jobs and guide the ship towards, towards harbor. And the point here is that today we have the encyclicals of the popes down through the centuries. We have the teachings of the councils of the church, and we revere these. We treasure them. We, as true Catholics, should reread the encyclicals of Pope Pius XII, St. Pius X, Pius XI, Pope Benedict XV, Pope Leo XIII, and, and on and on back what we have. Uh, we're not lost. We're not without guidance, because we have all of these uh, wonderful explanations of the faith and in the councils and so forth and the teachings of theologians before Vatican II. So it's not like there's a, a complete lack of knowledge of how to live as Catholics and what to do. Uh, but to one more thing, to, to particularly answer your question, what our attitude is today, I would say that traditional Catholics should learn about the true popes. Uh, how many know or, or have read for instance, let's say the life of St. Pius X or Pope Pius XI or Pope Pius IX, etc. And if we revere the papacy, we want to learn about 
the popes, the representatives of the papacy, the vicars mm-hmm. of Christ on earth. And so that's something we can do to read a life of a, of a true pope and to um, learn about their teachings and especially to read encyclicals or, or the teachings that they've given us through addresses and, and in any other format. Sounds like very sensible advice, uh, Father. Mm-hmm. Nicholas, were you, were you going to say something? No. Sorry, I thought you were, you were interrupting. Sorry, I, 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 um, I wanted to quote another little passage from um, Father Faber's sermon when he talks about actually the topic that we've just raised, which is um, the response of Catholics to times of great disturbance and crisis. And, and although, of course, uh, Father Faber himself was living in such a time when, when the, the temporal uh, kingship of the papacy had been ended effectively, the famous kind of exile uh, in the Vatican of, of Pius IX, um, how much more <laughs> of a crisis there is today when, when almost the entire hierarchy seems to have been abolished uh, and uh, the papacy disappeared. He says, quote, There have been times in the experience of the church when the bark of Peter has seemed to be foundering in the midnight seas. We are fallen on one of those evil epochs now. It is hard to bear. It sounds like he's talking to us directly. But there is a mighty power in the dejection of the faithful. It is a power the world might fear if only it could discern it or understand it. The silence of the church makes the very angels look on with expectation. We also must wait in patient tranquility of prayer. It is a day when the sense of our outward helplessness casts us more than ever upon the duty of inward prayer. This is the other duty. The open profession is of little worth without the inward prayer. But I think the inward prayer is almost of less worth without the outward profession. Many virtues grow in secret, but loyalty can only thrive in the bare sunshine and upon open hills. I was wondering, Father, how, how, how you would interpret these these rather these very powerful and evocative um, but also in a sense mysterious words uh, what is it that the world is to fear in the dejection of the faithful as, as Father Faber calls it and, yeah. and how are we to interpret um, the, this dichotomy between inward prayer and outward loyalty mm-hmm. today uh- Yes, and and what a as you say a powerful expression. And what exactly does he mean at the beginning of the quote that that the dejection of the church is a powerful, uh, is a, like a powerful weapon. And I think what what he's saying here is if you look at the history of the church, if you read church history, there have been so many times when the church seemed to be. Uh, foundering or or even being destroyed uh, through heresy, through wars, through uh, various uh, calamities and so forth. And yet the church rose always more glorious. So we're in not only in one of those periods of dejection, of, of humiliation, but much greater than ever in the history of the church before. But but it's not just being in that situation. What makes it powerful is our humility. One of the things when we have trials, let's, let's say on a personal basis, a person goes through temptation, as St. Paul talks about, you know, I was uh, thrice I besought the Lord that it would be taken away, and he said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. So why does God allow us to go through trials so that we will humble ourselves and trust in him and his grace and his assistance. And it's that humility that is what is so powerful. It's not just being humiliated and dejected. It's what do we do with it? So this humility 
leads us to prayer, and it leads to a type of prayer that is one of total trust in God. Our, our attitude is one, we are in such bad shape today, insofar as the remnant church, so battered and bruised and, and, and crushed, only God can, can straighten this out. It's Christ's church, and we completely trust in his divine promise that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and he will be with her until the end of time. We don't know how and when the church will rise from this, uh, this tragic state that we see today, the, how the church has been battered and, and so reduced in numbers by heresy, but we know it will happen. And so we have this trust in Christ, in his divine promises, in his power, and in his love for his church. So that, that it's that trust and this humility and this earnest prayer. One of the things I pray for every day is the restoration of a true Catholic hierarchy, an unquestionably true hierarchy. And I think we, we need to remember that. We need to pray for that intention, pray for a true Pope, and do so with, with a humble uh, realization of our, our need for this guidance. Um, so, so it's... Um, it's it's the humility that that realization that that dejection, as Father Faber puts it, leads us to that is so powerful. You know, the prayer of him who humbles himself shall pierce the clouds. And so we collectively, as the church, you might say the church is crying out to her divine founder for help to be rescued uh, in this dark hour. It's funny, uh, when I first came to a tradition, or what I thought was tradition at the time, I, the first time I went to a Latin Mass, I had a strong sense of, of a sort of snobbery, I must say, uh, but this okay. was in the Novus Ordo Church, because the people there, this is the oratory in London, glorious kind of Baroque church, mm-hmm. yeah. beautiful place, um, and the people there seemed to have the attitude, yes, we are, we are traditionalists, we, um, we found the truth, and we tolerate our sort of low church brethren uh, who say they're newfangled mass, but we know better. And there's a kind of there's a kind of a sort of pride in being better than the rest, which is completely absent when you when you finally get to that bottom, that realization of how damaging and, and the, the, the crisis in the church is. But all, as you say, you've got left is trust in God, because there is nothing else. There's nothing humanly that we can do other than try and keep our faith the best we can and pass it on to our children. Um, and I, and, and I also... Yeah, getting back to something Nicholas said earlier, and that is that as we go into the proper Catholic concept, it's not in any way to point fingers at or to uh, make uncomfortable, I guess you might say, anyone who may be listening who is of the, you might say, the recognize but resist mentality where where we claim he's the Pope, but we don't follow him and anything we don't think is Catholic. Mm. And I, I say that because I know that many people have been misled by pastors, by priests or, um, you, you know, bishops and so forth, who are of that thinking. And so they've imbibed to that. And it does take, uh, it takes a lot of prayer and reflection and study to, to recognize the, um, the logic of the argument for Sadie Vicantism, and then to embrace that. Now, uh, for some people, it's it's like automatically. It's it's so simple. It's like, well, why can't everyone else see this? It's so logical. It's so simple. Well, for others, it's a tremendous struggle, and so we we do sympathize with their their difficulty and pray for them. And as you said, we certainly want don't want to have that kind of an attitude that you encountered um, when you 
entered the Novus Ordo Church there, kind of the snobbery and the better, holier than thou, and so on and so forth. But, you know, we always must retain this humility that no matter how much I understand of the truth, it's only by the grace of God. And that should lead us to be ever more humble and uh, the, the servant you know, of our neighbor to, to try and help others, bring them to, closer to Christ, but do it in a humble way, not a holier-than-thou way. Absolutely. Goodness knows we all need to convert to our Lord <laughs> continually and every day. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I mean, I, I came through it, so I know I know mm-hmm. the, the kind of struggle and the mental and, and real emotional anguish, really, and, and, and feeling that you're leaving the Pope. <laughs> But for, uh-huh. for some people, um, before you finally come to the to realize perhaps what's happened, quite right. Um, that was well put, well put, Father. Thank uh-huh. you. The CMRI, as, as well as publishing this sermon by uh, Father Faber on devotion to the Pope, has, has published another sermon he gave the following year. I think it was uh, Pentecost in 1861 uh-huh. on devotion to the Church, and they they seem to be a kind of a pair. Devotion to the Pope, devotion to the Church. What kind of connection is there between these two little pamphlets and, and uh-huh. uh, in, in the thinking of the you know new priests of the CMRI as well? As, right. As, uh, well, you know, and there the is yes, there is a very close connection, and the connection is Christ, and that is devotion to the Pope doesn't just exist in a vacuum. It is devotion to Christ through the Pope. Getting back to what Father Faber said earlier about how, you know, we long to submit our will as a sacrifice for the love of God. And so we see the Pope as a visible representative of Christ on earth. Well, it's the same with the Church. Our faith teaches us that the Church is the bride of Christ, uh, that Christ is the head. We are the members, his mystical body. Uh, as Christ also said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we look upon the church as another um, incarnation, if you will, of Christ on earth, and, uh, a, a form, you might say, of Christ on earth, that it is his spouse, his bride. And so we have this reverence, this love for the church, not just because we are members of the church, but because we see in the church, we see Christ there, the founder of the church, who sustains her, I mentioned the, the promise earlier of indefectibility, infallibility, and so forth. So it's, it's Christ, ultimately, that we are honoring through our love for the Church and our love for the Pope, and really our love for all things Catholic, the sacraments, the Mass, etc. We honor and love Christ through the Church and, and through all of these. That's very clear. Simple response. Yesterday was the... Um Feast of the Chair of St. Peter of Rome. And traditionally, it, today begins the, the so called Chair of Unity Octave. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Father, whether you, you had any other thoughts about this liturgical feast. I know we, we, we um, in a previous show, we spoke with uh, His, Excellency, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan about um, mm-hmm. the Chair of St. Peter. But are there, what, what are the. Um, what are the traditional devotions of the Chair of Unity Octave? The Chair of Unity Octave. I mean, what are the kind of things that one should be doing personally with one's family at this right. time? Yes. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's important because I, I listened to that uh, program uh, with Bishop Dolan, and he pointed out, interesting. Why has 
the Novus Ordo Church kept this octave. Now, I don't remember the name, but he gave the name. They changed the name of the octave to, mm. you know, something else with unity, but kind of with an ecumenical flair. But they kept it because they knew they could use it and twist it to promote their concept of ecumenism. Mm. But uh, on our part, we definitely keep it and, and use it and promote it in the proper sense in which it was originally established and indulgenced by the Church, and that is to pray for the conversion of all those who are outside the Church. And it's interesting that the Church Unity of Octave, um, Chair of Unity Octave, was actually started by a non-Catholic um, in this country. And that was a Father Paul Watson of Graymore, New York. And he was an interesting man. He was an Anglican clergyman who started a religious community called the Society of Atonement. And they followed the Franciscan rule. And uh, this was at the time of St. Pius X. Uh, he might have started under Leo XIII. But as mm. time went on, he was conscientiously living the Franciscan rule and um, trying to follow the, the Gospels and so forth. And he developed a devotion to the Pope. And he would actually, every year, take up the collection known as Peter's Pence and send it to the Pope in Rome. And, uh, and his, his fellow Anglican clergymen were looking at him as some kind of a pariah, some kind of a strange... Uh, and, they, and they all said among themselves, well, he's going to be a Catholic sooner or later, kind of a <laughs> similar thing you might read in the life of Father Faber, Cardinal Newman, and so forth. Yeah. Well, in fact, that is what happened. And I think... I believe this is correct, that it's the only case where the Catholic Church has accepted uh, in, in, the, in the body uh, a religious group into the Catholic Church, because he, he not only entered the Church, but he brought this small, but nevertheless a group of religious, the Society of Atonement. So the Society of Atonement in Graymore, New York, was originally Anglican and now is or up until Vatican II, is Catholic. So this uh, priest was, was an incredible man. He then went to a Catholic seminary after his conversion and entrance into the Church and was ordained to the Catholic priesthood. But he had actually started this. He recognized that the chair of Peter, the primacy, was established by Christ. And so here he had this sense of reverence for the Pope even before he became a Catholic, and in fact, we could say that's what led him, likely, to become a Catholic, or certainly one of the main factors. And uh, this devotion, known as the Chair of Unity Octave, was then accepted by the Church and indulgenced by the Church, and in fact, um, I think it's in the Recolta number 622 that has the official prayer, the main prayer, and a plenary indulgence is granted on the usual conditions at the end of the octave for those who say that prayer. And I, uh, we use not only that prayer, but several others. Uh, one of my favorite is uh, number 624 in the Recolta. And in fact, if, if I may, I'd like to just lead that prayer right now. And this uh, especially coming from the Recolta, this official collection of indulgence prayers of the Church, we know this this conveys the mind of the Church about conversions. And this prayer, uh, again, number 624 from the Recolta, is, mm. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is that all men should be saved and that none should perish, look upon the souls that are deceived by the guile of Satan, in order that the hearts of them that have gone astray may put aside all the perverseness of heresy, and being truly repentant, may return to the unity of thy truth. 
through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, like in my parish, we recite several prayers uh, each day of the octave, and that's one of them. But to me, that, that prayer conveys so beautifully the Catholic concept of true unity. And that Catholic concept is found enunciated clearly by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical Mortalium Animus, that the only way to have true unity is to bring about the conversion, to work for the conversion of all of those who are outside the Catholic Church to the one true Church of Christ. And of course, that encyclical has been totally turned on its head by the Vatican II hierarchy. Just the opposite. These interfaith services are not about conversion. And I wish I had it in front of me. I read this quote of Benedict XVI to his cardinals, and if I remember, the date was December 21st or 22nd of this past year, in which traditionally the Pope gives an address to the Roman Curia right before Christmas. It's like his Christmas address. And this year, this, this past Christmas, in his address, Benedict XVI said, the purpose of dialogue is not conversion. I about fell off my chair when I read that, mm. because we know, that's, we know that's the way they think. But to be so blunt and so open about admitting it, that, that's what shocked me. Um, th- yeah. There was nothing new in their practice. This is the way they've always been since Vatican II. Um, you know, the, the whole concept of conversion. You think of all the missionary activity of the Church. Now missionaries go and they just they incorporate the different rituals of the, you know, the pagan areas into their Novus Ordo, and they just become social workers and so forth. This whole yeah. concept of conversion is lost. And, you make, and it all goes the... back. It, it all goes back to this concept that Christ founded one church and that that is the ark of salvation, and we need to pray and work for the conversion of those who are outside the church. So that's why this octave is so important, and really all all throughout the year. We must pray every day for conversions, but this is a particular time of prayer because it is indulgenced by the Church. It's not a liturgical octave, but it is indulgenced, highly indulgenced, and it reminds us of what the proper attitude of the Church is, and that is to welcome into her fold anyone who desires to be a member of the Church, who accepts the faith, receives baptism, submits to Church authority, etc., anyone can become a Catholic. And we certainly, getting back to what you said earlier, we don't have a better-than-thou attitude. We want to bring others. We humbly, we know we have the truth through no, no desert of our own. We have the true faith, and we want to spread that to others. So that's the, the attitude and the, the spirit that this wonderful octave conveys. And uh, Father, just to to head off any claims that perhaps uh, you made up that quote, I I just Mm -hmm. did a quick Google search and found on the Vatican website this uh, passage that you're talking about. It was December 21st, addressed to the Curia, and uh, Benedict XVI does indeed say, um, he speaks of his two rules generally regarded nowadays as fundamental for interreligious dialogue. One, Dialogue does not aim at conversion, but at understanding. Uh, in this respect, it differs from evangelization, from mission. And um, and then he, he, he in the next paragraph, he, he then says, true, dialogue does not aim at conversion, but at better mutual understanding. That is correct. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And you know what's even more incredible is how the... Um, traditionally minded Catholics who still believe he's Pope, how they will explain away quotes like that. 
So they'll, they'll look at that and say, well, see, you have to understand it this way or that way. And there's always an attempt to explain away. Well, it doesn't really mean what it says. It is what he means and so forth. And can you imagine it, at the time of Pope Pius XII or say Pope Leo XIII or whoever, Catholics saying when a Pope says something, well, he doesn't really mean it that way. You have to understand this. I mean, you know, for the faithful to time it, kind of pick apart what a Pope says and try and decipher what it really means. Uh, so this is what goes on with the recognized but resist crowd. They'll look at something and they'll either say, well, he wasn't infallible when he said that, or or he didn't really mean it that way. You've got to understand the context and what he really meant was such and such. And they'll try to uh, say what he didn't say in order to, to protect him and to protect their own concept that somehow he is a true pope despite his heretical teachings. I think that's a very good uh point to finish with father you've mm-hmm. been listening to restoration radio we've been talking about devotion to the pope uh, with father benedict hughes of the congregation of mary immaculate queen i would like to thank him once again for a very informative useful and dare i say it, entertaining discussion restoration radio is a production of true restoration publishing and media your hosts tonight have been mr nicholas wansbutter and myself piers hugill 